0: Biological evolution takes a really long time. Cultural evolution, things change really rapidly. The phones we were talking about being one example. And so we only have one autonomic nervous system. And when something, you know, in the past would trigger that fight, flight, freeze type of response, uh, it was essentially life-threatening. So, you know, okay, big bear. Either run away and get away, bonk it on the head with the rock, um, you know, freeze and it loses interest, or I get eaten. Last one, least preferable. But no matter which one, it was over, and all of those stress hormones could drain out of our body. Today, anything that stresses us triggers the same system, but they're not life and death situations, and they don't go to away. So obsessing about that thing at work, stressed out about, you know, the traffic. It's triggering all of those stress hormones, and yet the situation never resolves.
1: Welcome to Out of the Box with Christine. And now... Here's the host of the show, Christine Blasdale. Today's show is brought to you by HowDoICreateAPodcast.com. Want to create your very own podcast to promote you and your business? Learn how you can become a rock star podcaster in 30 days or less. Just visit HowDoICreateAPodcast.com. That's HowDoICreateAPodcast.com. Welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I am your host, Christine Blasdale, your expert authority business coach, and I help overwhelmed entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, well, I help them get out of their own way so that they can promote their business and let the world know how amazing they are and all the gifts that they have to share with the world. And today I'm very excited because my guest is a transformational life coach and speaker, And I am going to be popping the question to to him about how we can deal with our limiting beliefs and maybe how we can handle those limiting beliefs when they come up. Do we just let them go by like birds in the sky or do we live in it and and swim in it and just bathe in it all day? all night. So today I'm going to be talking uh, about that and much more with Jonathan Marion, again, a uh, transformational life coach and speaker. And uh, we're going to give the links to his website and all that good stuff. But welcome aboard, Jonathan. Welcome to Out of the Box.
0: Thank you so much, Christine. Pleasure to be here.
1: Absolutely. And, and may I say, as someone who coaches people um, on having a podcast and a YouTube channel, you have a very podcastable voice.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: Yes, you do. I, it's, it's a good tone. That's because I, 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 I listen to a lot of people. Not everybody has a podcasting kind of voice. But if you don't have a podcast, you should have one um, because you have a really great uh, tone in your voice. But that's also from you being a public speaker,
0: right? Uh, presumably so. Also, I not too long ago uh, resigned from a 20 year academic career. So I was a university professor. Um, of cultural anthropology for quite a while. So got very used to speaking in that capacity.
1: Right on. Cultural anthropology. What I don't even know yep. what that is. What is that?
0: Yeah, so basically the whole field of anthropology is just the study of humans and cultural anthropology. Uh, think about like 20, 30 years ago, um, you probably you know saw in the news or something, someone la- went and lived on an island and studied, you know, how people lived and yes. why they did the things the way they did. Yes, same approach, but looking at contemporary cultural practices as well. Um, I specialized in issues of performance, embodiment, identity, and gender, uh, primarily studying competitive ballroom dancing, starting before all the TV shows came out. How cool is that? And can,
1: <laughs> and 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 also, can you take a look back at like in the 70s and figure out? What the heck we were wearing, and what was up with all the <laughs> avocado green wallpaper and weird stuff that we had? Although I do look back up on those days a little fondly, because we didn't carry our phones with us everywhere. We uh, we actually got to go outside a bit, and when we had a phone call, it was that long cord that was in the kitchen. And if you wanted to have that private conversation with somebody, you had to take that long cord out into the bedroom and shut the door. Just, you just see this cord going through the whole house.
0: But yeah. Absolutely, and even as we then transitioned into cell phones, at one point in time, phones were still primarily phones and the actual voice yeah. quality was the most important feature. Yeah. Now it's you know all about texting and data and all the features. And none of them have great voice quality. It's really interesting. And personally, I find it a little disturbing.
1: Well, and we spend so much time on our phones now Mm -hmm. as well. Before it was just like, it was like taking the call or doing the text. And we had to do the text. with. (laughs) I remember when we first had the cell phones with the texting, you couldn't just... It wasn't just like a keyboard type thing. No, you had to hit one button like eight thousand times, and and then <laughs> oh, it was just so frustrating. So you just said, "Okay, I'm just gonna go, I'm just gonna call." But <laughs> anyway, I digress. So, um, so how did so you made that transition from being um, a professor and an educator yeah. to being
0: a public speaker and a life coach? How did that happen? Yeah, really interesting. Um. First half of 2019, I was on a research trip uh, down to uh, Brazil and uh, was staying with a friend of mine in Rio de Janeiro and uh, sort of was sitting in his living room, looking out the window and like, wait a minute, like the room he lets me stay in very generously is smaller than the closet of my house back home in the master suite but I feel more at home here, what's that about? And the more I thought about it, it was, you know, the people who know me here, they know what I do professionally. They're proud of me, they're proud for me, but they don't care. They love me, Jonathan. And that's the opposite of what academia has become, especially as it starts to follow business metrics and, you know, it's all about the production. To be an expert, which is what originally professors were, you have to be an expert consumer, not an expert producer. Mm, And the more I thought about it, it was, okay, a standard tenure track job, 40% is the research. And I enjoy doing it and I enjoy academic writing, but I don't love it. I'm good at it. I don't love it. 20% is the service. So I've been the president of national organizations. I'm good at it. I don't love it. The other 40% is the teaching. I do love teaching, but even under that 40%, so much of it now under that business model is following these different types of metrics and learning outcomes. And the part I really always loved was those informal conversations with students before class, heading out of class, where they have their own questions that take the class topics, but it's applying it to things that they're aware of or have come across in their own life. same phenomena with my graduate students, my master's students, my PhD students, where I'm helping them figure out what are their questions and how are they going to find their answers? And as they do their research, how do they explain and make sense of what they've seen for other people? And I'm like, wait a minute, helping people ask their own questions and find their own answers, that's coaching. So (laughs) now I can do the part of the job I really want to do. Um, And then something I didn't realize at the time that was really interesting later was as I started training as a coach, um, you know, on some of the classes, people would be like, this is such a different way of thinking. And I would go, wait a minute, to me it isn't. What's going on? And I realized that as a cultural anthropologist, when I was doing ethnography, when I was going in and studying different cultural settings, the premise is they're the experts, I'm not. And the whole purpose of my being there is to understand what's going on from an insider's perspective, but with an outsider's objectivity to sort of see how it might fit in in ways they don't. Well, so I'm doing that same project at the individual level as a coach.
1: I like that. I really like that because it's not it's not even so much that you're like a guru sitting there going, I have all of the answers. Come to me, children. I will tell you what those answers are. you're you're basically turning it to them and saying that they have those answers, but maybe they just they're not they're they're not seeing it. They've got the blinders on, maybe. then they're not really just seeing what those answers are. And I think that's a great learning experience as well when you're able to apply things to To yourself, but mm-hmm. sometimes you do need that outside perspective. You do, as a expert authority coach, I will talk to clients and they'll and they'll say, "Well, who who wants to listen to me or who's gonna who's gonna watch me on YouTube or uh, listen to a podcast or something like that?" And I'll say, "You do know that you have like thirty years um, experience dealing with X, Y, Z, and." You have all of the qualifications for somebody who is an expert in their field, and they just don't see it. They don't Mm -hmm. see it
0: because of those limiting beliefs as well. Right? And I think that that's exactly right, that you can't be a good coach if you don't inherently believe in the innate value, resourcefulness, capacities of every single person who you're coaching. And so they have those capacities, they have those expertises, no one else has walked their steps, has lived their life. And there's something that can be gained from that. And I can't know what the best way forward is for anyone else. Only they can know that, though, when you're in the midst of it, you may not be able to see it for yourself. That's where getting the support from a coach becomes useful. But I'm that mirror saying, well, you said this, yeah. But you're doing that. What's going on? Not, this is wrong. It's like having a little mini me <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who's, yes. who's going,
1: but you just said this. Did you not realize that you just said this about yourself? Oh, you know, I love that. Mm-hmm. That is a very, and that's a refreshing way to, to look at coaching. Um, I love, I love coaching. I love, and it, I feel that be, uh, I'm more of a teacher. Right. And it's just giving them some skills and teaching them some processes that they didn't know they didn't know about but Mm -hmm. once you it's like when you teach somebody how to ride a bike when you have that kid who is trying to get the balance and they fall off and they're like this is horrible once they get the idea of balance uh and you get them a decent bike um then they can they can take off and they can travel and they can explore and do all kinds of different things i'm not doing that they're doing that mm-hmm. right which is what you which exactly. is what you're talking about oh so it, what would you say as as being a, a life coach and and in your speaking career what would you say are some of the common themes that people seem to be grappling with um it doesn't matter so much um what their ages are but just uh, mm-hmm as a general zeitgeist, what do you think most people are dealing with right now?
0: Um, So I think there's lots of things going on in the world. Uh, What I can speak to the most is sort of within the niche that I work in. And I think it's problematic when anyone thinks that, you know, they're the best coach for everyone. It's not possible, right? No one's the best doctor for everyone. And so what I have lived and therefore what I coach around the most are those people who have become accomplished by external measures and yet find that life isn't as meaningful or fulfilling as they thought it was going to when they got to that point. So I see a lot of that. Um, That's not to say there aren't other things going on. Uh, I think one of the things that's much sort of a broader framework that this falls inside of is what we've all come to sort of know as the rat race. And uh, as a friend, it wasn't theirs and I don't know where they got it from, but as they pointed out to me uh, on the phone, right as I was starting to make the transition into coaching, we're human beings, not human doings. And so when we get so caught up in what we're doing and what we're accomplishing and what we have, we're missing the part that actually is about being human, human beings. So focusing on how you show up in the world, how you interact with people, how you make decisions, I think is a different framework, and it really helps adjust what becomes, you know, whether it's, you know, keeping up with so-and-so, following these trends, doing what you're supposed to do, Um, you know, uh, back in, what was it, the 50s, I think, Karen Hoare and I came up with that uh, terminology of the tyranny of the shoulds. And so we all get caught up in, we should be this way. We should do those things. People should behave this way. And the major reframe that I try and introduce to all of my clients, keep a list of all of those shoulds, like throughout the day, notice how many you have, but rewrite all of them each night, could. This person could have been more polite to me when I was waiting in line. My coworker could have got the project in on time. My boss could have recognized my efforts on this project and keep doing that over time, you know, at the end of the week, look at it, you know, are there certain shoulds that show up more often than others and keep doing it until in your head, mentally, the minute you say, should you catch yourself and you flip it to a could. And I think that really helps with that idea of limiting beliefs, because this idea that things should be a certain way that's fighting with what is, what is, is should doesn't matter. Right, right, absolutely.
1: I like flipping the script. I like flipping, reframing, um, things, and I, I forget. You know, when you were talking about, uh, I think this also goes to the cultural anthropology. <laughs> I just threw out a big word there. <laughs> um, you know, they've they've done studies, and I've witnessed this myself in my travels. Um, I haven't traveled as much lately. But I've noticed this as well, is that um, in cultures, in societies, communities where people have a lot, right, have a, a big car, I mean, a, a big house and a fancy car or have the job and have the picket fence and all of that thing in the latest, whatever, you know, n- nice clothes, there's a sadness, there's a deep unhappiness that when you go to these other parts of the world where literally they have nothing, they, they if they have clean running water, it's a good day, right? Yet, even though they don't have the the possessions or the maybe the security, the the financial security, they're living, they're happy. There's many people that are actually very happy. Yes, there is poverty, and then when something happens, uh, the stress that comes from that. But on the whole, um, they their quality of life seems to be better than someone who is living in the so-called,
0: you know, industrial world or whatever we're calling it now. I don't know what we're calling it mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So I think the really interesting thing, and in what you were just bringing up, is they only have nothing if you're looking at it as no. Things. It's only if you're looking at the physical objects. If you're looking at the quality of life, then they actually have much more, they're far richer than most of us may be in a day to day basis. And I think it's when you're not faced with all of the different stuff and making the decisions of which things should I have, and you're not bombarded with, if you have these things, you'll be, you know, more attractive, you'll be happier, you'll be, you know, Healthier, or whatever it is, then what you focus on are the things that matter, which are human relationships. And I think this goes back to our, you know, uh, it seemed to be divergent conversation about phones. Ostensibly, the idea of cell phones was you could be in touch with people all the time everywhere. But I remember watching the transition happen. I've always traveled a lot uh, in airports. And it used to be when you were in that waiting area, you actually started talking to the people around you. You actually communicated with the people who you could literally be in touch with. And as the cell phones came in, you were either talking or texting or now watching videos or whatever you have. And so ostensibly you can be in touch with everyone, but you're not actually even communicating with the people you can literally touch anymore. And that has to do with human relationships. And there's so much research now that shows that it's that sense of isolation and, uh, even going beyond loneliness, but lack of support, lack of network, that's what leads to different types of addictions and, you know, self-destructive practices and self-harm. It's that lack of human connection. And that's not what's happening with these other people or people within our own frameworks who've actually made the realization and the commitment to really focus on the quality of the relationships they have.
1: Oh, you just you, you said something so important right there that like for the, the first time in human history, we have the ability to be in con- contact with uh, everyone on the planet. I mean, I'm I'm probably I don't know where how many thousands of miles or kilometers I am from you, but I know when I'm working with a client, there's seven thousand about seven thousand miles away from me. And so it's, it's brilliant that we have that ability, but like what you said is that we, we have all of this technology yet what we are missing is that human connection. You know, I I remember back, I I sound like my grandmother. I remember back in the day (laughs) when I was a kid, um, no, when I was a kid, (laughs) we, you had to interact with everyone on the playground, you know, your best friend, the weird kid, uh, the nerd, you know, the one that was just like the like everybody was kind of like, I don't know what he's all about. Um, the the teachers that you like, the teachers that you didn't like, but you had to interact with them. And it shapes you. Uh, it, it shapes you in a certain way, whereas now it's like, oh, if I don't like this person, I'll just delete them
0: hmm
1: right i mean like literally we can delete we can block we can delete and yeah. um and you're so right though those human connections um that we used to have and maybe some people are still able to have um i'm i'm hoping that they still have those human connections as well but that's very very true absolutely so um so what are you doing right now where are you right now
0: Um, At this very moment, I am in Prague. Uh, One of the things that once I switched over to coaching and I could actually travel and didn't need to be in one location as I was uh, when I still worked uh, in academia is uh, I have a background in partner dance starting from back when I did the research on competitive ballroom. And so I really love uh, the dance form called Brazilian Zouk. Um, and so there's, uh, two weeks of events coming up in Croatia starting tomorrow night. And then there's a marathon back here in Prague the week after. And so while I can right now, um, I'm moving to Portugal sometime early next year, but since the beginning of 22, I've just been doing the nomad thing. So at the moment I'm in Prague, but I'm off on an overnight bus to Croatia tonight.
1: That is fabulous. That is so, so good. And I, and I think that what probably I can imagine that while you're when you're traveling, you actually take the time to sit to talk to the person that's sitting next to you, right? To strike up that conversation because some of those are the some of those conversations are the most amazing that we have that they, are the person sitting right next to us,
0: right? Oh, absolutely. And then even within the dance community, if we're talking about literally being in touch, it's a partner dance, and so all of those things about. How you show up for yourself, how you show up with someone else, how you show up, you know, being sensitive to each person is different. It's nonverbal as well as the verbal spoken version. And that was stuff that I researched, you know, when I was doing my academic work on dance. And it's stuff that I explore now and both, you know, developing my own dancing and I've started to teach some dancing as well. Um, In June, I was a resident artist in Nashville um, teaching some dance. And it was really interesting because after the first class I taught, I'd ask someone how you know, they liked it. What did they think? They said, I didn't know I was coming to therapy this morning. Um, but it's about how do you relate to yourself? How do you relate to another human being? And the underlying ideas are the same thing. Um, it's not about leading or following a given move. It's leading or following a partner. And so you interact with each person differently and developing your sensitivities towards that and your toolkit for doing it differently with different people, it's not that different from coaching.
1: Well, and I like the fact that you need to be present. It's it's a great um, exercise of being fully present. And that is another thing that I think that we uh, tend to, as human beings, but especially now with, again, with all technology and all these wonderful little gizmos and things, is that we, are either worried thinking about the past about what has happened right and we go into that soup mix of what has happened or we're worried and we have an anxiety about the future but very few of us have that ability to be present right and whatever Mm -hmm. that means it could be you washing the dishes you know how many of us are really there present going you know I am actually very grateful that I have dishes to wash and I'm, and I'm going to enjoy this process. Or are you sitting there going, Oh, why, <laughs> why did, why did Joe say that to me today at, at the office? Right. Mm-hmm. Or what is, what is Susie going to say uh, to me tomorrow? What is my boss going to do to me tomorrow? What's going to happen? Can you talk about that? Cause I, I find that we do, we live in the past and we live in the, in the future, but not so much in the present.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, because the only thing we can actually change or influence is the present. Um, You can't do anything about what's already happened. You can do work right now about what stimulus value that has for you. You can change how you relate to what's happened in the past, but you can't change what's already happened, and so obsessing about it, and that might be too strong a word, not everyone is obsessing, but still getting trapped there, getting caught up in that, isn't actually gonna change anything that already happened. Uh, The same thing with the future. Like it's one thing to be like, okay, I'm gonna sort of role play what are different scenarios so that I'm ready, but just worrying about it doesn't do anything. And I think it relates to this idea of the different speeds of biological evolution and cultural evolution. So biological evolution takes a really long time. Cultural evolution, things change really rapidly, the phones we were talking about being one example. And so we only have one autonomic nervous system. And when something you know in the past would trigger that fight, flight, freeze type of response, uh, it was essentially life-threatening. So, you know, okay, big bear, either run away and get away, bonk it on the head with the rock, um, you know, freeze and it loses interest, or I get eaten. Last one, least preferable, but no matter which one, it was over and all of those stress hormones could drain out of our body. Today, anything that stresses us triggers the same system, but they're not life and death situations and they don't go to away so obsessing about that thing at work stressed out about you know the traffic it's triggering all of those stress hormones and yet the situation never resolves and so i think that's part of why we're so stressed out and why those practices of just being here and now allow those things to go away far less frequently than is just what biologically you know we were sort of evolved to accomplish
1: well and that would make sense too why um they've done studies too like on meditation and certain yogic pra- practices about what happens with the brain waves and 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 be- because you are at that moment being as much present as as fully present as you can, even though like, I'll try, I'll be there and I'll, something will happen while I start to think about something from the past or I'll think about, Oh, tomorrow I've got to make sure that I'm doing this. Okay. I got to get up early. And it's like, stop it. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> Again, yes. not to being too hard on myself, but you know, just having just that it's,
0: it's, it's precious having that presence, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. It absolutely is. And as I'm sure you know, when you just tell yourself to stop it, on its own, that's never going to stop it. It's like that old adage of pink elephant. Like, don't think about a pink elephant. Well, what pops into your mind? And so it's, well, how do you then navigate away? And so let's take your example of washing the dishes. Uh, I can't tell myself, oh, be present. I need, it's something you do. You can't sort of experience joy by telling yourself that you need to be in the moment. So if I'm washing the dishes, I can then choose to pay attention to different somatic sensations. So if I'm like, okay, I actually want to pay attention to the wetness of the water and to the temperature of it and to the texture of the actual thing I'm washing versus the texture of something else versus the suds versus the sponge. And so if you bring your focus onto something that's right here and now, that's when that other stuff sort of recedes back because your attention is in the present,
1: oh right. And would you say that that um sort of that because you mentioned the fight or flight um, that you know so much of of our wanting to be accepted, either if it's in a family situation or in a friend situation or in a societal s- situation community. That need to feel um, accepted and part of the tribe is also something that's hardwired in us, Um, you know. Because I'm, I'm sure back in the day, when the the clan kicked you out of the cave, you were really just mess. You you were goner, basically. Like, good luck. You're not going to survive very long. So, is it that survival that like, uh, not prehistoric man uh, for survival mode, but Is that something that we is still embedded in us that,
0: but those memories? Yes. And I don't think it's just about embedded from the past as a species. Think about how human babies are born versus any other species. They cannot survive on their own. Part of human evolution has been culture and what's culture. It's learned shared patterns of ideas and behaviors. Well, you don't learn in isolation. The speed at which you learn as an infant is astronomical, but it's not enough for you to survive without being taught by others, by you know, parents, by other caretakers, by the community. And so from early infancy on, we learn and it's imprinted on us that the only way to survive is by having people around us. And again, young children cannot survive on their own. So I don't think, I don't disagree, but I don't think we need to go to the past to understand where that sort of wiring, where that, uh, you know, sort of internalization of, I must have connections to survive. I must be accepted. If I'm shunned, if I'm excluded, I cannot survive on my own we're social animals the whole field of social psychology is predicated on that
1: well also and they've done and they've done studies with um with baby um chimpanzees as well like you and even if you have all of the things you have the water you have the food you have the water you have a blanket you have all this the necessities of life but if you don't have that nurture uh aspect right Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, if it's not the, the, the mother holding the baby chimp, um, it's a surrogate, uh, holding, you know, um, making that contact, um, that, that chimpanzee will, will not fare very well, um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Mm -hmm. So even if you have the,
0: those things, um, it's not, is the same as having that connection, that bond. Yeah. And we've seen the same thing actually in human infants with, not the same types of studies, but it's called skin hunger. And, you know, uh, babies that are born and don't have a mother, you know, the ones who are just left, you know, within a hospital setting and don't actually have touch, they wither. There needs to be that human contact. And so that is part of our neurobiology. And, you know, how we take it forward is certainly shaped by whatever cultural framework we grow up in, You know, how do we expect it to be fulfilled? What do we think we're supposed to do to get it? But the need is just built in. Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And then how we process if we did not, if we do not have that, how we, how we deal with that, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Oh, wow. We cut so deep, didn't we, Jonathan?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Philosophy one hundred and one with yes. Christine and Jonathan.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. We could sit here and talk about this forever. Well, let's um let's get into the 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 real nitty gritty too about our, you know, I had mentioned in the beginning talking about our those limiting um, beliefs, and mm-hmm. and for those of the for those that are listening, and then for those that are watching on on YouTube, you. You know, I think it's a I think it's a balancing act. I think that we're not built necessarily to always think really positively and to think that, you know, yes, you can do it, Christine. Yeah, you're you're you know, you're hundred percent. Um, we go in waves and I, I think is in general, right? But those limiting beliefs, I believe, can can really hold us back in in terms of relationships, right? Relationships with family, with with friends, with potential love, romantic relationships um, in our careers. You know, you might have someone who uh, by all on the outside, it looks like a successful career, but they still have those limiting beliefs so bad that it's really holding them back in a lot of different ways. How do you approach that with clients um, when you're dealing with some of those limiting beliefs? Do you mirror that? Do you say, Hey, I've, I've got the same thing (laughs) or, or, uh, or do you just kind of shine that mirror on them and say, this is what you've, I, you just said, or this is what I've heard you say.
0: Yeah. So I think that the first part of, you know, being a good coach is taking your ego out of it. So this isn't ever about me. So um, I have different approaches, but it's always gonna be what's gonna resonate for that person. It's not, you know, you're gonna get the Jonathan version. It's no, you're gonna get Jonathan showing up to support you in the way that works for you. I think one of the things um, that you brought up that's really important as a caveat here. Um is that we're not advocating for what's, you know, some people now refer to as toxic positivity. This isn't about, you know, there's always a silver lining. It's for a reason. Um, I think that's very unhealthy. Um, There are true tragedies in the world. Um, There are tragedies, you know, at a global scale. There are tragedies in people's lives. And to say it happened for a reason, I think is very dismissive. Yeah. To say you can find personal meaning in your experience of this is totally different. But to say it, there's a meaning to it, I think is really unfair. And so when people do present with, you know, a different type of limiting belief, like, you know, no one ever blank, I never get recognized blank, uh, then it's a matter of, well, ever? No one? So it's just introducing that maybe it's a slight overstatement. Maybe it's an exaggeration. Um, And once we've done that, we say, okay, you notice a pattern that's different from this is a universal. So we've already poked the hole in that idea of it's an absolute in your life. Um, And I haven't told you, no, it isn't. I've asked you, is there any counterexample? From there, I think one of the things that's really interesting is not everyone and not all the time, but in general, humans are motivated by pain aversion more than pleasure seeking. We don't want to be in pain. And so, you know, sort of saying, oh, okay, well, what is that belief costing you? And let them then think that through and say, okay, so you're saying, if you thought about it differently, if you could find a different framework that you truly believed in, these things wouldn't be in your way anymore. So now there's some buy-in to, wait a minute, I really would not like to not believe this, which is already then accepting that it's a belief, not a truth. Then we can start to excavate okay, well, what else might be possible? What else could be going on? What are other possibilities going forward? That's how I start to work with those types of things.
1: That's That also parlays into how uh, the stories that we have, right? The, the stories of what happened to us when we were kids. Um, and I like the approach, too, of not negating someone's um feelings or emotions about things or if they've just experienced the loss of someone. Um, you know, I know when I when when I had to I had to put my little toy poodle, Bodhi, I had to put her down. And mm. I it just crushed me. Like I was as it, it was as if, you know, someone, you know, who I was married to for 50 years ha- had had passed. Right. I it was just mm. like horrific. And uh and I remember At the time, it was very interesting because I remember at the time going, you know, and because I had a job and and, uh, I was working for a a company organization. And I remember thinking, you know, if I lost my wife or I lost my kid or I would um, I would have the time to grieve and they would say, don't even worry about coming in. You just had a great loss. You just mourn. and, And it was like, I felt like I lost my child. And I had to get right back into it. and so while there were people that were compassionate ab- about the situation, I remember just sort of going, hmm, this is this is strange because we're you know it's like, well that was just a pet, you know you need to pick yourself up and um where we cannot we cannot be the judge for other people, I think. Having the empathy, because even though you're trying to guide them through something, having the empathy and understanding where they're at or why they have those emotions is really important as a coach, as a counselor, as a therapist or or any of that, just to, to, to feel
0: that. And, and that's appreciated by the person I'm sure it's appreciated by your clients. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And I would push even a step further. I don't actually need to understand where they're coming from. I just need to believe them about their reality. Yeah, It's not for me to judge. Uh, and it's not necessarily for me to understand. I haven't had their experiences. I don't know what role that pet has played in their life. And it's incredibly judgmental for me to say, this is how much grief is the quote appropriate amount. And again, it's one of those shoulds saying it should be this much, it's ridiculous. There are none of those things. So just taking someone, this is the most painful thing that's happened to you in your life is the most painful thing that's happened to you, whether it's getting a splinter or having nerve damage. It's not to say that nerve damage wouldn't hurt more if it happened to you, but what's most painful to you right now is what's most painful to you right now. That's the only frame of reference you have. Who am I to tell you anything differently?
1: Yeah. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Oh my goodness. Jonathan, how how can people get in touch with you? Because I know um, uh, they probably would like to know a little bit more about you um, and see what you if you have some programs or some ways for them to contact you. What's the best way?
0: Yeah, uh, the two ways I would say right now are go to my website, which is stepsalongtheway.global. So just one word, uh, and it's the name of my coaching business. And it goes back to what I said before, that I think it's the steps we all take along the way that sort of make us who we are. And it's doing those with intentionality that gives us the quality of life we want. So mm. stepsalongtheway.global. And yep. again, it's not a .dot .com um, because I just want people to know that I work with people everywhere and I travel And so whether it's for speaking or coaching, we can do it online. I can come to you. You just let me know. Um, Or they can email me. And so it's SATW coaching. So SATW for steps along the way. Um, S A T W coaching at gmail.com. And uh, happy to have people connect either way. Beautiful.
1: Absolutely beautiful. I'll make sure that um, I have your contact information in the show notes. So people, if you're driving or you're, You're running or you're dancing you're doing the brazilian what was it called
0: brazilian zouk z-o-u-k
1: if you're doing the zouk Mm -hmm. or a flamenco whatever (laughs) um you don't have to worry you can just check the, the show notes and and check out those links um jonathan thank you so much for joining me today it's been a very enlightening conversation and i enjoyed it immensely thank you again
0: for coming on the show absolutely my pleasure christine thank you for having me on and uh, hope what I've shared adds some value. And uh, thanks again.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely did. Uh, and folks, if you've gotten some value out of this and you want to share this information, that's a great thing to do. Don't keep it to yourself. Share the link if it's a Spotify link or uh, Apple Podcasts. I know that those are the two most popular uh, platforms that that y'all y'all listen to. So um, if you want to share a link that way, that's great. But if you want to also see my wonderful guest Jonathan. Um, you can go to YouTube and check out out of the box with Christine there and share the video. It's actually very easy to do. And if you want more information about the show, just go to out of the box with And if you want more information about me and my coaching uh, programs, you can go to Christine Don't worry about spelling any of this. Again, the the links will be in the show notes so you can find everything nice and easy peasy. All right. Until next time, as I always say, remember to think outside that damn box. Bye for now.